changemakers. You see them all around you. They're in your communities, your schools, your workplace. They do powerful things and they make change happen. In this series, we interview the many changemakers who built up their policy toolkits at Princeton and went on to change their communities. These are their stories. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Changemakers. In today's episode, we have Jeremy Barnacle, who's served as the executive director of EcoTrust since 2016. He's spent over two decades working at the intersection of policy, philanthropy, and social change, including 11 years at the global humanitarian organization, Mercy Corps. At Mercy Corps, Jeremy helped guide the organization's global strategy and positioned the Portland-based nonprofit as one of the most respected humanitarian organizations in the world. Prior to Mercy Corps, Jeremy worked for the State Department, for a U.S. congressman, for several consulting firms, and as a Peace Corps volunteer. He has a bachelor's degree from Vanderbilt and an MPA from the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, where he also taught a graduate course on the social sector. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks. So before we get into some questions about your time at this school, I'm, I'm really curious about EcoTrust. Uh, can you sort of tell us a bit more about what your organization does and maybe some of the current projects you're working on that you're particularly passionate about? Yeah, of course. So EcoTrust is really a fascinating organization. And I say that without any kind of pride of ownership because I, you know, of our 30-year history, I've only been here for the last five But to my mind, what's fascinating about it is that we operate at the confluence of the environment, which the name suggests, but also the economy and with equity. And, you know, coming from the background I came from, I never would have been all that personally motivated to work on anything that was strictly environmental, right? And it's not to knock, you know, the importance of that work, but for me, it was really that combination of the environment and the economy and equity uh, that that drove me to it. So, you know, we are based in Portland, Oregon. We're a bioregional organization, meaning that we 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 work from Alaska to Northern California. Uh, generally speaking, um, you know, on matters that relate to natural systems and the way that natural systems interact with the market and with people. And so, as examples of current work uh, that I'm excited about. Uh, a couple of things. We've long worked in the regional, uh, you know, food and agriculture system. You know, basically looking at how can we reform the food system in a way that is better for rural economies and communities, better for the stewardship of natural systems, um, and better for eaters. Uh, you know, honestly, from a from a health standpoint. And because of the racist pattern of land ownership in this country. Uh, you know, that work has ended up really leaving out a lot of communities of color. And so a real focus for us in recent years has been, okay, how do we take that important work? It's not any less important than it ever was, uh, but but make it more inclusive and more responsive to the unique needs of people of color in this region. Um, and so we have yeah, a whole body of what we call food equity work that is about uh, empowering uh, small and medium-sized ag producers and entrepreneurs uh, of color, uh, which which has been super interesting. So I'm very excited about that. And then another body of work that I, I'm really jazzed about right now is around green jobs and green workforce development, because 
particularly in this region, you know, we just through early research realized that there was a real mismatch between the growing demand for skilled labor in green industries like environmental restoration, urban forestry, uh, deconstruction of residential housing, you know, certain type of waste management. Basically, there's a lot of demand for skilled labor in that that wasn't being met. And at the same time, you know, we were observing that you had to have a chronically underemployed population in this region of, of uh, Black and urban Native young people. And so based on that, we created uh, what we call the Green Workforce Academy, which now we're in the fifth cohort uh, where we take young people from those populations and help prepare them for careers in those fields. And then, you know, try to line up the destination employers so that they actually have a place to go. So, I mean, those are two of, you know, I want to say 30 projects we have cooking, but they're things that I'm particularly interested in right now. You know, we've been asking a lot of people about what issue, what policy issues they feel are most pressing in our country. Obviously, food security is one of them. Climate change is another. Are there any that you would add to that list um, aside from COVID-19? For me, I, I mean, I, I, people say this a lot, but I, I think I do think that climate change, global warming is the existential threat to life as we know it. And I think like that is just an apex problem that we need to solve. And I I was excited to see the the big Princeton um, net zero 2050 yeah. report that came out in the last couple of weeks, because I think that that is really practical, you know, for people like me who, who care about this. And we can sort of look at, we can situate our work, which in our case is all around the sort of natural climate solutions related to forestry and agriculture um, in a broader context. So it's super helpful. But yeah, for me, it's it's really climate change and I think in this country, really, racial justice um, is is a huge, huge deal um, that I think, you know, it has been so long delayed in our addressing of it in a truly deep way, and yet is so fundamental to us being the country that that we want to be. And so, you know, I really do see those two as as the big ones. And yeah, and race is so embedded in every policy issue, really. And that's been coming up a lot in these conversations. I bet. Just moving a bit toward your role, I mean, because you are in a direct leadership role, what skills or strategies have you learned over your career that help you be a leader? And um, maybe how has Princeton helped with that? Sure. Well, on the first part of the question, you know, I, my early vision of being a leader was very much, you know, a result of the system that formed me, right? And it was very sort of top-down, you know, white, male-dominated, you know, a lot, uh, you know, being a leader was about being decisive and bold and, a, you know, a charismatic public speaker and, and a lot of that kind of stuff. And I will say that that, you know, my, my practical experience of the last five, 10 years has really inverted that, right? Where I think leadership has a lot to do with humility and vulnerability and truly listening, um, you know, to, to both your team and, uh, and your partners, the folks that you want to work with. I would say, you know, specific to the current context, you know, leadership has been about endurance, honestly, right? I mean, if you look at the, at the year that we just experienced, I, I found myself, there were only so many, you know, emails that I could write or, you know, kind of opening remarks I could give in team meetings and such that said, I, I know this is hard, but, 
right? You know, because, you know, first it was hard because of Trump, and then it was hard because of COVID. And then it was hard because in this region, you know, we had in really intense wildfires that, uh, you know, that were super disruptive. And, you know, we had racial reckoning that, you know, was hard for different, you know, different colleagues in different ways. And so I do think that just, being able to like stick with it and lead with an authentic sense of hope was a really important leadership attribute. And, and one that, you know, I, I frankly just struggled with, right. Because the year was hard and leaders are people too, in a sense. So it, to be able to, to be authentic and hopeful uh, with your team, but also allow yourself to be vulnerable when, when times are tough, like that's been, that's been a big one. Yeah. That's a big lesson that I'm sure a lot of leaders learned this year. Yeah. So on the second part of your question, which is more specific to the school, I think one of the really important leadership lessons of the school was it gave me a sense of what is possible. And I do think that as a leader, in in contrast to being a manager, right, a leader does have to have some vision. Right. I mean, you, you have to, part of doing the job well is going to be pushing your team and your community to think broadly and to, to, to set big goals and be audacious and believe that it can happen. And, you know, particularly as we are coming off of the Senate uh, elections in Georgia and you think about Stacey Abrams and a 10 year vision for what, you know, what the electorate in that state could be like, what the voting experience could be like. I mean, that's vision. And then, of course, you know, she seems to have done just a tremendous job of implementing uh, mm-hmm. that vision and bring people along. I mean, that's leadership. That's a great example. Do you think leadership is sort of this innate quality that people possess, or do you think it's something that can be developed? Definitely the latter. It, but I, but you know, to my earlier answer, I, you know, I think I came up thinking that leaders were born, right? right. And, and I think you know, there are certain attributes that certain people are born with that that lend themselves to formal leadership. But no, not at all. I think leadership can absolutely be learned. And frankly, you know, you have to make an effort to do it, right? There's a, you know, there's this dynamic where you see people promoted, you know, by virtue of their technical expertise and their performance in a particular role that they've got. Um, but but that doesn't equate to leadership, right? I think, I think people show leadership at all different levels of an organization. Um, and as a leader myself, like I really keep my eyes out for that because you could have these incredible independent contributors who, you know, are, are, are super valuable, but they're not leaders, right? And it's a mistake to try to make them do that just by virtue of, of being high performers. That's a really good point. Uh, I guess going back to the Princeton School of Public Interna- International Affairs, h- how else did it prepare you for the career you've had? Because you, you've also worked in communications, which we can talk about. But what are more of the tactical skills you gained that you maybe still use today? I always tell people that 502 the psychology course was yeah. the most useful course. And I, th- I think, I think you hear that a lot. I do. Um, yeah. <laughs> has been, has been, you know, just the broadly the most useful course I took there because, you know, when I was there, which is back in 03, 04, 2003, 2004, you know, it was right, right. You know, Danny Kahneman won the, uh, the Nobel while we were there and it was sort of the early stages of what became, I think, a really interesting public interest in social psychology. His book and others have now become kind of a nightstand reading for folks. But the idea of learning, like, how do people make decisions? Are people really rational? 
uh, how do you how do you persuade people of things? You know, how from a policy perspective do you frame things so that people are making the best choices for themselves? I mean, that has been incredibly useful, both you know from like a broad policy or organizational strategy level, all the way down to you know how I convince my kids to you know help me with the dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big one. I would say for me too, you know, the basic numeracy and and comfort with data analysis uh, was a really important piece. I mean, that was part of what attracted me to the school in the first place was it was pretty quant heavy. And because that wasn't really my background, that that was and, and remains really useful. It's just important as a leader that you're not scared of numbers. You also spent some time teaching at the school. What course did you teach? I taught a course, and truth be told, I don't remember exactly what we called it. I, I <laughs> taught a course with Professor Stan Katz, which was just in a, in itself just an honor. But what we looked at was uh, the role of philanthropy in this country, well, primarily in this country. We did a couple of sessions where we talked about it um, on a global scale, but primarily uh, the role of philanthropy in the U.S. And part of Stan's expertise is in the history of philanthropy, which which he focused on. And I really focused on sort of the the practical intersection of social change organizations, both with philanthropy, with uh, the state, with the market. And I loved it. I mean, I just loved it. And I thought that the the sort of one-two punch of Stan's uh, academic background on this and my just day-to-day management of a vibrant social enterprise um, I thought that that combination was actually really helpful for the students, almost all of whom were graduate students. We had one or two undergrads in the seminar, and it was great. I loved it. I loved every minute of it, other than the the transcontinental commute, uh, because I was working full-time here and have two small kids oh my gosh, and would yeah. take the red eye on, on Wednesday nights, teach the seminar on Thursday, and then fly home, you know, uh, Friday morning, be in my office wow. by noon. So that was kind of grueling, but, uh, but I loved it. I mean, the student, you know, it's like the, the students at the school are smart, you know, they're motivated, their values are great by virtue of, you know, by virtue of the choice that they've made. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. What was it like sort of to be on the other side of the table as a non-student this time? I was surprised at how much work it was for me. Um, mm. You know, I think, and I, you know, I, 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 in no way, you know, I'm not a professional academic and, and I'm not sort of typical of the folks who are teaching at the school, you know, who have kind of a, you know, would have, would have spent more time, you know, figuring out exactly how they were going to teach things. So for me, there was a lot of work, um, you know, just in preparing sessions and identifying readings and, you know, I didn't mind uh, the reviewing of papers and all that stuff, but yeah, I, I felt more pressure than I think I appreciated when I was a student uh, looking at my professors, but I learned a ton. You know, that was actually one of the most rewarding things about it is how much I learned about the subject matter I was part of teaching. Just pivoting a little bit, um, we talked earlier about how it's been kind of a tumultuous year. And, you know, just given how polarizing things have been in the United States and even globally, in your experience, both at Mercy Corps, Ecotrust, elsewhere, what do you think are some of the most effective decision-making strategies that one could employ? Yeah, this I this is such, such an important question and topic. So, you know, I would say for me, and this has been part of my own learning journey, I have an appreciation for clarity around, and this is more kind of at the organizational level, you know, the importance of clarity around decision rights. And what I mean by that is being very clear, like, 
we have a decision to make. Who, who plays what role in us making that decision? Who do we just consult, right? Who do we inform? Who is actually the decider? Having clarity of decision rights, I think, at an organizational level is incredibly important. Um, and that's something that I, you know, I think I, I would have taken for granted before. So that's a big one. I think the, the big one, and this has really been driven home, I think, you know, for me personally, but for us culturally, I would say over the last few years is really asking yourself, who's at the table as part of this, who, you know, because you've got all these communities that have been historically either actively or passively, um, kept out of, of, of decisions that affect their lives, right? And what I've seen is that you're go- going to make better decisions that have more durability and longevity if people who have traditionally been left out of those decisions are included and not just included as sort of a, you know, a face at the table, but actually with, you know, with, with meaningful input and, you know, and, and real decision rights on, on what that is. So as an example here at EcoTrust, you know, when I came, we had an eight-person leadership team, which was all, you know, basically, you know, Ivy League-educated white middle-aged people. And, uh, you know, super smart, uh, you know, fairly uh, harmonious group. But the lack of different lived experiences really, I think, inhibited us from doing our best work. And, uh, in the last year, 18 months, we've expanded our leadership team. So, you know, it's now, I want to say, 14 people, six of whom are people of color, two of whom are there by virtue, uh, not of their kind of, uh, you know, formal leadership authority, but as representatives of our equity working group and our BIPOC affinity group. And, you know, and those, those folks are both people who are, are earlier in their career or more junior roles in the organization. And their input has been incredibly helpful. And I, I won't say that it's always been easy because, you know, those of us who have had been in, in positional power for a while like that, right? I mean, it's, it's nice to know that you've got the authority to, to make decisions and do it and have people implement it. And so to broaden that and to share that power is, is hard, but it's been transformative, you know, so it is both values aligned and uh, I think it's getting us better outcomes. Definitely. These, these decision rights that you're talking about, I've heard other people bring them up. Melody Hobson brought it up when I spoke with her in this series. Is this like common practice at organizations or, or is this like sort of new? I'm just curious. You know, for me, the the specific language of decision rights and the the clear framework that we and and I know a lot of other groups use it it's relatively new to me. And I I know in in other organizations I've been part of, I hadn't seen anything quite like it. Even though you know informally there was always some kind of understanding of how decisions got made, but I think you know part of the reckoning that's going on you know in this country possibly more broadly around who has power how and how they use it i think that there's there's definitely a growing expectation and i think it's a good thing that there'll be a lot more transparency around who makes decisions you know who's at the table you know and and so i think it's it's definitely a thing that's going to be with us for a while and that's that's great well we're just about out of time so as we wrap up we like to end on sort of a looking forward approach i guess looking forward question I'm curious, you know, for those who are entering the workforce today, whether it be in policy or 
elsewhere. What, what advice would you give them on, you know, being successful? You know, I think for people in early career and particularly the, the high achiever types coming out of the school, I think the thing to keep in mind, and I, I see this as I look at my more junior colleagues, you know, that it's really important to be willing to basically do anything, right? That that folks showing up, you know, ego-free, doing good hard work and doing it competently and with with great spirit, that's really important, right? So you you can't be too too good to do what you know what your organization needs you to do. At the same time, it's important not to get stuck in kind of small ball, right? Uh, that that you want to demonstrate to your colleagues that you're a big thinker and uh, that you've got a lot of capability and that you are appropriately ambitious. That combination of things, both like, yep, I know that so-and-so can get it done, but I also know that so-and-so is really smart and is really thinking big and has a lot, you know, a lot to bring to the table. That combination, I think, will serve folks well, because as your colleagues see that in you, you know, they know that they can trust you to, to deliver what you needed to deliver. And they want you at the table because you, you help the mission move forward. I love that. And actually answering my own question a little bit here, I had in one of my very first jobs, I remember I went to a meeting and I stayed completely silent because I was really young and, you know, I didn't really know everyone around the table. And I remember after the meeting, my new boss pulled me aside and said, I need you to talk in those meetings. We hired you for your ideas. And it sort of mm-hmm. what you said. I was, I was terrified. Um, and then from that point on, I thought, you know, when I have an idea, I'm going to uh, voice it. So That's great advice. Well, Jeremy, this has been fantastic. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? No, other than I, you know, I think that, you know, the School of Public and International Affairs is an amazing place. You know, I always have considered it a blessing to have been able to go and have that experience, you know, as a student, as an instructor. And I really wish wish folks well, because the world needs, you know, needs the, the types of folks who are coming out of that program. 100%. Well, thank you again for joining us today. Yeah, of course. Take care. You've been listening to Changemakers, a podcast produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. This show is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Rose Huber. Listen and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you find podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.